Hi everyone and welcome to Tyndall Talks. In this episode, me, Charlotte Brown, and my colleague James Mason, both PhD researchers at Tyndall Manchester, talk to Professor Kevin Anderson. He tells us about his interesting and varied career, including his time spent in Sweden and his experience working on climate change there. We discuss carbon budgets and the role of the Climate Change Committee. And finally, he tells us about his ongoing links with Greta Thunberg and the role she's played in promoting the climate change agenda. Just so you know, this episode was recorded back in February before the COVID-19 outbreak in the UK. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for being with us. Yes, my pleasure. Um, so, first of all, I'd like to say that I love the scope of your career. Um, so I heard the other day that you started off designing oil platforms and now you're one of the most influential climate researchers in the world. It's a very interesting career. How did you get from where you were to where you are now? Well, actually, it started well before oil platforms. Um, I, I left school at 16, having been brought up next to a nuclear power station where my dad worked as a, as a fitter, a bit like a, a mechanic, I suppose. And I, I left school at 16 and went into the Merchant Navy. So I spent the first five years of my, um, of my life, uh, adult life, I suppose, um, training as an engineer in ship's engine rooms for container ships and oil tankers and even um, one passenger liner. So that was my original career before going to university later on um, because of some changes that were occurring in the, um, in the Merchant Navy in the very early 80s. And then um, after being at university, I went to design and build offshore oil platforms. Um, but I have to say, right from my childhood, I'd always had an interest in environmental issues. And I had seriously thought engineering or being a vet, that were, they were the two options I was considering. Um, and climate change wasn't, wasn't an issue then, and sustainability wasn't a, wasn't a topic, at least that, that sort of language wasn't used. But the broader concern about the environment was, in, was important. And being brought up in the countryside uh, around Sizewell and visiting regularly up to the west coast of Scotland to an island there where my uncle was a crofter, a shepherd. So I sort of spent quite a lot of time in the rural environment, but I loved all the engineering that went in around the power stations. And my dad used to work at a coal-fired power station. So all of that was really fascinating to me as a kid. And it was finding some way to combine these. And I always liked being at sea. I used to do quite a lot of sailing and swimming in that in the, in the um, because we lived on the coast. And, it, and the Merchant Navy sort of combined those to some extent that you get to see this, you know, the beauty and the nature of, of the wild world being in the Pacific and the Atlantic and so forth, but also working on these pieces of engineering equipment and trying to work on them in a way that, and do things that were broadly in line with, with what I thought was, was correct from an environmental point of view. So I, I was... I, I caused a few problems in things like not, not um, pumping sewage over the side when, we, when the tanks were full. I would just pump it somewhere else and we'd have to deal with it in the morning. And, and then when I worked on the oil platforms, it's the same thing to do with some of the spills that I was recording and the use, of, and, the use and abuse of CFCs and particularly the leak, the, how they were just uh, vented to atmosphere, the chlorofluorocarbons and related to the ozone layer then. So I was always trying to look at those interplays between environment and engineering. So that, you know, it, it doesn't feel to me there was any great revelation. I never saw one day, oh, I'm going to move across to this. It was a, a gradual transition. So the reason we're doing this podcast is to do with the Tyndall Centre celebrating its 20th anniversary. Can you tell us about you coming to the Tyndall Centre and the first project that you worked on? Um, I came here, uh, oh, I think it was either the late 2000 or just 2001, around about that period. And there was a gentleman here then called Simon Shackley, who now works up in Edinburgh as an excellent researcher and a really good, um, he was a really good foundation stone of the Tyndall Centre, actually, in many respects. And uh, he and I knew each other from some previous work that we'd done back in the um, uh, mid to late 90s. And he, there was a position came up here and said, would you be interested in applying? So I applied. Um, so I came over here and um, I think my initial work was discussing um, how to get 
certain countries um, bought into the Kyoto Protocol because that hadn't been um, ratified at the time. So I was involved in some work around on those sorts of sets of issues, trying to understand the implications of, of, of the countries who weren't signing and how they should be signing, why they should be signing. I was involved in some of the negotiations um, with New Zealand and with, um, with Russia, actually. So that was probably my first set of work when I first uh, when I joined the Tyndall Centre, probably about 2001, 2002. And then quite quickly, there was some seed core money and um, was advertised. And I applied for that and got um, I put something in on aviation because as far as I could see, there was almost nothing being done on aviation at the time. So I put some money together for that and we did some research on that. We eventually then applied for, um, put a, an advert out for to, to extend that work and um, uh, Alice Larkin applied. And so <laughs> as it turns out, then you know, Alice's work came from that, that early sort of project, seed core money, how important that can often be in developing new ways of thinking back in the you know, relatively early 2000s. And you, uh, you mentioned aviation. Um, I'm right in thinking you went to China by train on the Trans-Siberian Express. <laughs> I did indeed, yes. <laughs> I'm interested to know, because um, at, at the time, what were the reactions of your colleagues? Because I imagine now if you choose not to fly, even if you chose to take the Trans-Siberian now, people would be a bit shocked, but it would be like, you know, we know there's a climate emergency. Yeah. It's good that you're not flying. But back then, what were the reactions of your colleagues? Was it different to how it would be now yeah i think it's certainly i think it's probably less challenging now than it was then um and what was also interesting is that uh, is realizing all the things you have to do you have to, i was doing teaching and so forth at the time as well and, and lots of other things that i had to find some way to to, to deal with those sort of day-to-day issues you, you can't just you can't just leave you've got to sort them out and actually leaving wasn't so easy then because it was a really problem finding out you know sorting out visas and sorting out all the travel because it wasn't something that there was a lot about how you do this and how i'm going to link that in with the work i was supposed to be doing in china and then also to extend the chip in china so most people i knew just flew there for a sort of day or two and then flew back again after having gone to see the chinese circus in the evening all the things that i think are uh, you know deeply problematic about how, how academics often engage when they're abroad um, and I thought, I can't do that. I've got to go for longer. If it's going to take me 11 days to get to Shanghai from Broadbottom, <laughs> I can't justify just being there for two days. So I spent three weeks there in a lecture tour and so forth. Um, it was it was certainly challenging to organise, but I mean, I think these things come down to your personality. As far as I was concerned, I wasn't going to fly. I hadn't flown since 2004 and um, I had no intention of flying. I was as I was the director of the Tyndall Centre, so it's sort of obli- um, obligated to go to this this new centre of the Tyndall Centre which has been opened in um, in Shanghai, uh, University of Fudan, and there's this sort of expectation that that directors come together um, uh, for these sorts of events, particularly with the sort of the culture in China. And so I had no real choice but to go. Um, and because I was sort of a fairly, some people may say obstinate, or whatever, different adjectives may be used, but sort of person, I just thought, well, okay, if I've got to go, then I'm going to go without flying. So, so for me personally, it wasn't hugely challenging um, having to deal with the flak, but it was quite challenging having to deal with the organisation. So I've heard a bit of a running joke in the Tyndall Centre that once you've joined, you never, you never leave because <laughs> it's so nice, so nice, such a nice centre. But you, at least partly, uh, have left to be a professor at Uppsala University in Sweden. Uh, so what's it like being a professor in Sweden? Really enjoyable and worthwhile. Um, and I'm saying that not just in isolation, but as a compliment to being in the UK as well. It works really well with being here. There are significant differences culturally, but they're not so significant that there aren't really interesting lessons and crossovers between them. So I found that really fascinating. It's also been very interesting to me to realise how advanced the UK is in its thinking around climate change. And I'm quite specific here. I'm saying it's thinking, not its acting on climate change. And I would say that extends 
from you know not only the academics academically i think we're well advanced in, in our thinking on climate change but that also includes the policymakers, the journalists civil society and even businesses so across the sort of portfolio of different constituencies in the uk um i think we're fairly well advanced in our thinking about climate change not in terms of our acting when we're particularly advanced in coming up with ways to avoid acting um and when I got to Sweden, I thought they would be similar, another sort of cli- supposedly self-avowed climate progressive country. And certainly on, on sustainability, they're head and shoulders above the UK. But when it comes to climate change, they're a long way behind. And indeed, the, uh, I keep pointing this out to, to, to Swedes I engage with, including at, in, at the government level, their new climate law, which I was partly involved with trying to provide some information for, which was passed in 2018, isn't as advanced as the UK's 2008 Climate Change Act. So from an academic point of view, it's actually slightly easier being an academic over there because you can almost take the things that we thought about here a long time ago. You can take them to Sweden and they, they're like sort of new, you know, new ideas on the block to, to some extent. But then also they play out in a different cultural environment, an environment where um, I've never met a cynical Swede. They may be sceptical, but they're not cynical. And in Britain, we're a deeply cynical society now, which I think is incredibly destructive. And you don't have that in Sweden, not yet, and no, no real sign of it in, in any depth yet anyway. So it means you can actually engage in a much more open, honest, clear fashion, and people will engage on the substance of the debate, as over in the UK, because it's deeply cynical, everyone's trying to hold their position, and they're not interested in new, often, anyway, they're not new, interested in new information, they just want to maintain their position, regardless of what the evidence is suggesting one way or the other. And that, that has been really refreshing in Sweden. But I think it has been interesting that it's, it's shown this contrast between the UK and many other parts of, say, even continental Europe, let alone some other parts of the world. And we have to remind ourselves, we have a small, peculiar island that's been obsessed by the weather because of our, probably because of our agricultural heritage and our maritime history. And so in some respects, if you look at when the the Met Office was set up and then the climate change work in the Hadley Centre, this was way ahead of most other parts of the world. So we've got a longer history, I think, in being involved in the issues of weather, which then morphed into issues of climate and climate change. So I think there's a historical precedent for why we're so interested in these things and why we probably are leading in terms of understanding, even though I think, uh, and rhetoric, we're certainly leading on that. But I think we're, we're not leading on, on action, unfortunately. And what do you have in your, uh, on your bike here? Um, I have uh, shoes, socks, shirt, um, a slightly warmer top. So everything you need for a week is, is, is sort of wrapped up in the bike here, but I will be wearing very similar clothes on a day-to-day basis. So it's a, a wash-in-the-sink job. What are you uh, looking forward to the most? Getting back safely. <laughs> but hopefully, uh, if the bike work goes well, then the presentations are, are reasonably well accepted and uh, good, good liaison with the with various people turning up from companies and from civil society and so forth, and from local government, um, that I can't really ask for more. So that was a clip of a special <laughs> trip that you made in Sweden. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about that, Kevin? <laughs> um, that was a, what comes out of a, 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 a silly discussion at lunch sometimes when someone sort of mentions, oh, you do lots of cycling. Why don't we have a cycle chip? And someone says, oh, we can call it a carbon cycle chip. And you can wander around Sweden on your bike and uh, you do a talk in the morning, a talk at lunch, and a talk in the evening. And it, this all sounded quite nice as you're sort of chatting over your, over your sandwiches. And then um, before you know it, other people say, well, I can be involved with the organisation. And, and oh, you know, I'm, all I'm doing is providing the legs and the talks. And I'm sort of out of everything else. I get asked one question by one of my wonderful colleagues, but who doesn't do any cycling. What speed do you typically cycle at? And in Sweden, I cycle at about 31, 32 kilometres an hour, is what I told him. So every day was organised at doing 100 miles every day at about 20 miles an hour. No time for 
for coffee, tea, lunch, a pee stop, nothing like that. No time for getting out of towns with traffic lights and bridges going up and all those other things. So it, it, to be honest, it was, it was very hard physical work for two weeks cycling from my lunch, morning talk to my lunchtime talk to my evening talk. Regardless of the weather, you had to be there. Um, but except for one occasion, I think it was in Gothenburg, when I I'd had a broken spoke and it had rained for 100 miles, poured down with rain and was really windy. And I arrived without the time to go to the hotel and had to go straight to the event. Someone took the bike off me, straight on stage, 300 people. Someone shoved a banana in my hand because I hadn't had any lunch. I was virtually what we call bonking in cycling, running, like hitting the wall in the marathon, running out of energy, soaking wet, dripping, wearing lycra with 300 people in front of me to give a presentation. So that went, I might say it went wrong, but to some extent, it captured the idea that actually you're doing things differently, that there are lessons to learn. Like don't try and do 100 miles a day in three talks. <laughs> but it was, I think it worked well in Sweden. Again, coming back to what I was saying before, because it's not a cynical society. Over here, you would be ridiculed, I think, by a lot of the press and others, um, and even indeed some of your colleagues. As in Sweden, that's just not the way these things are seen. Um, so I think, again, it was much healthier from that point of view. Um, it was certainly, you know, it's an unusual for someone to turn up on a bike. And often I was asked, could I go back and get the bike and cycle to the event at the end, you know, so, they could, so that the local press could film you turning up on your bike. So um, it, was, it was interesting. I learned a lot from it um, uh, in terms of the engagement with different, um, different sort of constituencies, sometimes councils in the morning or sometimes companies, and then maybe civil society at lunchtime and often maybe um, a political event in the evening or an open civil society event in the evening. So I learned a lot from that whole process. And I think... Um, hopefully opened up some sort of discussions within within Sweden. So, Kevin, I've got an interesting quote about your work here, so about your research uh, from uh, University of Manchester website. So I'll just read it out. With his colleague Alice Larkin, Kevin's work on carbon budgets has been pivotal in revealing the widening gulf between, between political rhetoric on climate change and the reality of rapidly escalating emissions. His work makes clear that there is now little chance of maintaining the rising global temperature at below 2 degrees C, despite repeated high-level statements to the contrary. Moreover, Kevin's research demonstrates how avoiding even a 3 to 4 degrees temperature rise demands a radical reframing of both the climate change agenda and the economic characterisation of contemporary society. So firstly, what do you mean by the widening gulf between political rhetoric on climate change and the reality of rapidly escalating emissions? Hmm. Well, that really comes out of the, of the science to some extent. So there's this language now of carbon budgets, which in the Tyndall Centre we've been using since 2005 indeed. I think our first report on the living within the carbon budget for the UK was 2005, 2006 actually, I think. Um, but now it's actually the language that's coming also out of the IPCC in the sort of latest set of reports. And when you look at a carbon budget, that's the total amount of carbon dioxide that we can emit um, um, from now out to, if, if you like, we're almost, almost forever, certainly out 100, 150 years. Um, and when you think of it like that, rather than the 2030 or 2050 target, you start to realise if you're pumping out a lot of carbon dioxide now, you're very rapidly using up the budget. So like if you've got your, if you had your annual salary and you use it all up in week one, then you haven't got much left for the other 52, 51 weeks of the year. So, um, and, in, and unlike a salary, we don't have a new budget at the end of the, you know, this, you know, this period. We, we, this is it for life now. We have this carbon budget to spend. And we're using up, using up so rapidly because we're so high on the curve. And the problem is we've been using it up at such a rate. And remember, the first IPCC report came out in 1990, which I would gather both of you were probably either not born or, I mean, your parents may not even have met in 1990. So throughout all of your lives, we've known what we should do about climate change. And we've been using up this carbon budget during that period. Now in 2020, we have just a whisper of carbon budget left for our understanding of two degrees centigrade, how much we can emit. 
And because we're so high on the curve, if we're going to actually stay within that budget, that means we've got to have to have radical, profound changes to what we do today. They would have been much more incremental if we started in 1990. They've been significant, but still within the current system if we started in 2000. We failed every single year. We chose to fail. Uh, collectively, those of us who engage in these issues and governments and policymakers and, and the journalists. And we've, we've, we've hoodwinked ourselves and deluded ourselves and everyone else that we're trying to do something about it. But now here we are in 2020 with just this whisper budget left. And just to put it into a bit of context, what does three to four degrees mean, both nationally for the UK and, uh, and globally? Well, globally, it's, it's like living on a different planet. I mean, we, in, in modern human terms, we've only seen about, say, the last 10,000 years, we've seen about one degree centigrade of warming in that period of time. Um, and since really, since the sort of Industrial Revolution, mostly really the last 50 to 60 years, we've seen almost another one degree. You know, we've seen this one degree increase occur over a short period of time. So we have no historical precedent for these sorts of changes. But of course, the other big thing is that um, you know, the climate, as people will regularly tell you, particularly people are sceptical, always changes. It's the rate of change that matters. So societies can deal with changing climate. So can ecosystems, but not when they're introduced almost overnight. So three to four degrees centigrade warming in 100, 150 years is, is an overnight switch. And that will be chaotic for, for sort of almost like every system, whether it's a human system, which, of course, are reliant on ecosystems, whether it's the insects, whether it's the flooding, whether it's the droughts, whether it's the military tension as, as people are having to move because of those sorts of levels of change and the effect in the agricultural processes. So almost every single facet, well, not almost every single facet of life will be fundamentally different. Um, you did mention the IPCC. Would you be able to briefly explain that for some of our listeners that maybe don't know what it is? The IPCC. Right, the, it, the IPCC is the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and was set up really in the last, late 1980s. And it was, it, it's, it's a UN body that brings together every, every few years, every sort of four or five years, uh, the wealth of scientific research that's actually in, in the literature, in the, in, the, in the journals and so forth, and brings that together in a series of reports that explain what the science is around climate change, what the impacts of climate change might be, and also what we might do about it in terms of reducing our emissions, but also in terms of adapting to climate change. So it's, a, it's really, it's, it's world's, the, the world's scientific community coming together and trying to understand what's the best, um, best assessment that we can make of the situation we're in and where we're broadly heading. Um, and it does this every few years. And it's a, it's a really excellent organisation. I for me personally, I have for a long time been highly critical of the section on reducing emissions. And that's because it's, it's innately a political issue. I mean, there's a lot of technology in there, there's a lot of science that feeds into it, but it's deeply political. And actually, I think it's been really problematic, working group three. But the working group one on the science and the, and the two and so forth on the impacts and even some of the adaptation work, I think is really excellent. Um, and, and, we, and I think should still continue. So although I'm sometimes critical of the IPCC, I'm being critical of Working Group 3, which focuses on what we should do about reducing our emissions. And there, I think we've just run scared of challenging the, the current political economic paradigm. So, Kevin, you just mentioned carbon budgets. Could you explain a little bit more about them and talk about how quickly we need to reduce our emissions according to the carbon budgets? Okay. As I said before, the carbon budgets is the total amount of carbon dioxide that we can emit from now out to forever. And that's really important to bear in mind. Um, and 
first, I should say the work that uh, that colleagues in the Tyndall Centre and I have been been putting together just quite recently has been a focus on energy, the carbon dioxide, principally from burning fossil fuels. But it's also really important to bear in mind that the significant amount of the warming we're seeing, around about 20% there or thereabouts, comes from the agricultural system, mostly from, from other greenhouse gases, so from methane and from nitrous oxide, from fertilizer application and, and, and animals, and also even just plowing a field will give you methane. And that's an important part of the picture. So about 20% of the total warming, that's not part I focus on. Um, uh, myself, I'm I'm interested in it, and certainly a lot can be done to reduce the emissions from that sector. But they cannot be eliminated. We will always have a significant amount of warming from the agricultural system. Even if we were all went vegan and didn't eat rice, you'd still have quite a lot of emissions from that sector. And certainly, if you head towards nine billion people, you're talking about quite a few billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. Um, so my focus is on the energy side. And the, from the work we've just done recently, if we just have a reasonably okay chance of staying below two degrees centigrade, given or bearing in mind that two degrees centigrade is not a safe threshold, and nor is 1.5, both of which are in the Paris Agreement. You know, many people, as I regularly say, many people will die. They'll be poor, low emitters, typically a long way from the wealthier countries that are causing the problem. And they'll often typically be non-white as well. So we've known that for a long time and we haven't responded to that challenge. But let's be very clear, these are not safe thresholds. But nevertheless, I think two is about the best that we can now achieve. And our assessment there, using the latest IPCC report, the latest Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, and the carbon budgets that are in that, is that we have about 650 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide we can emit. That probably means nothing nothing to most people, unless you're a sort of climate change geek or guru, however you may look at these things. But that's somewhere around about 18 years of current global emissions. But let's also bear in mind that in the Paris Agreement, the Copenhagen Accord, even going right back to the Kyoto Protocol, there's a whole sort of concept and language of equity that's used there, which broadly is saying that the wealthier countries have to lead by example. If you play that out, then in fact, you can, as we've done in our latest paper, which is due out and it's in press now and due out um, hopefully in, in the next few weeks, um, we've worked out then what the carbon budget would look like, the range for the UK and indeed for Sweden and the wealthier parts of the world. And to put that really simply, for the UK, we'd have about nine years of current emissions, Sweden a little bit less than that. And to give a feel for that, that's about a, over 10% reduction in our emissions every single year. So you think between now and the end of 2022, something like a 30% reduction in emissions. Between now and the end of this decade, 2030, about a 70% reduction. And it means that by about 2035, for the wealthy parts of the world, you know, the UK, Australia, Japan, the US, many countries in the EU, maybe not all of them, but most of the countries in the EU, that means fully decarbonised energy by about 2035. Planes, trains, ships, industry, cars, everything. That is a fundamentally different agenda to the one that we hear repeatedly from lots of academics, from lots of the, from lots of the what effectively economic modelling groups. Um, you know, we'll often hear, hear things from the journalists and the Committee on Climate Change. And that's because the agenda that we're putting together or the framing we've put together from the science doesn't fit with the current economic paradigm. Um, but that's, you know, that we would argue if you, put, if you put together our commitments in Paris with the science from the IPCC and you do some basic arithmetic, you end up with this, uh, with this really hugely challenging um, these implications and it's then that you can see that most people say well well we can't do that and therefore we need to find every fudge we can and we've spent 30 years developing one fudge or one fraud or one swindle over another it's interesting that you mentioned that because uh i've got a, a tweet here i know that you're, <laughs> you're very active on twitter yeah at kevin climate yes um yeah. yeah so the tweet is around the uh uk's committee on climate change 
who are an independent body that advised the UK government on emission targets. Uh, so the tweet, I'll just read it out. It says, uh, why is there su such little critique of the CCC's net zero report by academics and the wider climate community? It is designed to fit with the current political and economic status quo and in doing so proposes cuts in CO2 far smaller than those needed to meet our Paris 1.5 to 2 degrees C commitments, which is essentially what you were just talking about. Now, I know that the Tyndall Centre has been... Um, key in setting the Manchester City Council's target. Um, so our method says that they need to aim to become a zero carbon city by 2038. Now the Committee on Climate Change say that the UK have to be net zero by 2050. Now where does that disparity come from? Mm. Well, there's a lot in that question. Um, the first thing I think we have to be very careful about, and this is why I think the language is really important, the Committee on Climate Change are not an independent committee. Everyone says that they are a quango. So I can't remember what that stands for. It's not a quasi-autonomous, non-governmental organisation, I think it is. So they're funded by government. And they need to be, their voices to be effective need to be heard and understood by government. And the judgment they have made, and it's, it's not an unreasonable judgment, it's one I would disagree with, is that to do that, they've got to speak in the language, the numbers and the rates of change that government understands and accepts. And I, don't, I think we shouldn't manipulate the science in that way. I should also add, although I'm very critical and there are not many people that are critical of the committee on climate change at least not not in public many people are privately i hasten to add um the secretariat i think are excellent they're a really good group of people and i think the new ceo chris dark is also excellent i have to say that the commissioners there's a set of academic commissioners who oversee and i, I in some respects set an umbrella framework for which within which the the secretariat work i think those academics who are all excellent academics in and of themselves by and large, have taken a very political role, and I don't think that has been their, their they should have they should have done that. I think they should have stuck to their scientific integrity rather than their interpretation of what they think is politically possible or plausible. So I think the CCC have been part of the problem, um, and yet I still have a lot of hope that they could be part of the solution. So how is it they managed to do this? They managed to do this at the net zero report, or I think more accurately, the not zero report, it should be called. So look at the spreadsheets. Most academics don't bother to do this. They make a quick statement when they read the, when they read the net zero report, which they probably just read, read the, you know, the, the openings of paragraphs in the press release. Look at the spreadsheets. They are anticipating 40 to 50 million tonnes of carbon dioxide from continuing to burn fossil fuels in 2050. That isn't zero. That's, that's some fossil fuels, let alone the emissions of greenhouse gases that come from agriculture and industry and so forth. But they continue, they expect to see that in, in 2050, and actually it carries on, on across much of the century. They're also not particularly clear as to what happens after 2050. And what happens after 2050 influences what we can say about before 2050. They're reliant on these technologies, which is now, which thankfully over the last couple of years have started to to come to the fore, people have, have been aware of them, these negative emission technologies. Remember, these don't exist. So when we say technologies, they're sort of ideas of technologies that may exist in the future. There's a few pilot plants. They're very, very small, but by and large, they're in the imagination of, of postdocs and probably a few professors and so forth. So they're not things that we can rely on. You can't go and buy them from the shelves. Yet virtually every single model in IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Working Group 3 on Mitigation, includes planetary scale uptake of these technologies when all of the modelers are either retired in Tuscany or dead. So it's all interesting this. I think that that is an interesting point, that we are prepared to say future generations can deal with this because we won't have to. 
Now, I don't think that's a process that, that we go through directly, but it's a process that informs our thinking sort of more culturally. And the more people that, that, that borrow and buy into that systemic delusion, the more it becomes the norm. And it has become the norm. The Committee on Climate Change are deeply reliant on negative emission technologies. Again, the academics that have com- commented on them often haven't thought about, well, what's the quantity they're assuming? That's not actually written down in the Net Zero report. You have to talk with them and they make certain sets of assumptions. And I would argue that their, their negative emission assumptions are huge. Now, our latest paper, we've estimated the, the carbon budget for the UK at about the most optimistic one we can come up with is about 3.8 billion tonnes. So about nine years of current emissions. Now, that's territorial emissions. It doesn't include consumption-based about our imports and exports. It does include aviation and shipping, um, however. So about nine years. You know, that's a, that's a different story to not zero by 2050. So we, we would say that you need something well over 10% every single year. And then when you play that out, and I think building on the really excellent report, if anyone wants to read something on climate change about where the emissions come from, I think the Chancellor and Piketty report on carbon inequality from 2015 is a really good starting point. You know, most people, even in the country like the UK, most people are relatively low emitters. You know, the emissions are put out by a relatively small percentage of the population. At the global level, about 50% of the emissions come from 10% of the population. Well, the UK is a highly unequal society, so it's something similar here. Or indeed the US, probably that dis- different, the differentiation will be big, but not as big in somewhere like Sweden because it's more egalitarian. So I think you have to understand then that what, what you get out of the analysis is that for many people, they will, they will have to see incremental, significant, but nonetheless incremental changes to how they live in their lives. And often that can be improvement in quality of life. So you'd have to retrofit the poor quality housing so they live in better quality houses, so their children haven't got bronchial conditions, so they get a better education, not have to have as much health care, which is cheaper for the health system. They'll have to see better public transport because we need that to get people out of cars to reduce the emissions. But for the small group of high emitters, which includes most of us as academics, you know, we're going to have to see some profound changes to our lifestyles. And we don't want that. And who are this? Who's in this ten percent group? Climate scientists, the academics, the barristers, the policymakers, the business leaders, the senior NGO chairs, and so forth. Across the board, all of us, though, all of us who work on climate change, either are in or desperately aspiring to be in the top ten percent of emitting groups. So you have to have the foxes have got to to guard the chicken coop is a sort of metaphor I often use. And the, you know, this looks very challenging. And the CCC broadly have have played the game that many people, including many academics, have done here, which is saying, how can we massage this, this story, which is, which is not in line with contemporary society, with one that actually is in line? And is it right that the top 10% emit 49% of emissions? Yes, well? about, yeah. Yeah, around about half of, globally, around about half of emissions come from that top 10%. Um, and if I say, we think in a country like the UK, it, it will vary a little bit, but it gives you a flavour of that. It's something probably similar here. Um, and so if you, uh, we're, we're in Manchester now, and you know if you go to Cheatham Hill or, the, or the, just the houses around here, these people will be very low emitters. They won't drive much. They'll have old cars. They will say, oh, they've got old cars. They're polluting. But they won't drive very far in those cars. They won't often fly. They live in really um, low-quality houses. So their heating may be very high, but that often they're renting those houses. They can't do anything about that. They're locked in to the current infrastructure. People like me and others who often, and I know lots of my social science colleagues say, well, we're locked into the infrastructure. We have huge agency. We can change lots of things about our lives that we choose not to, and we pretend that we're locked in to these high-carbon lifestyles. For the significant swathe of the UK society, they are locked into them. But for a significant swathe of the high emitters, we're not. And we still find an excuse as to why we, um, we aren't prepared to act. There's just one little number, maybe helpful, maybe it's not. But if you took the 10% of global emitters, and it's, a, it's you know, quite a simple calculation to carry out, and assume that 10% reduced their carbon footprint to the level of the average European citizen, so 
you know, most Europeans manage on that on average. Um, and the rest of the world make no change to their current lifestyles. That would be a one-third cutting carbon dioxide emissions at a global level. So, Kevin, we, we know you engage a lot with Greta Thunberg. Um, uh, Thunberg. Thunberg, sorry, my apologies. Greta Thunberg. Um, and uh, I actually have quite a nice story about this. Uh, we were <laughs> at, the, <laughs> at the Tyndall Christmas party this year, um, and I was, I, was, I was organizing it, and it was about to start, and then uh, Kevin came over to me and was like, oh, James, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna have to leave for the first hour. I'm not going to be able to make the first hour. And I was like, oh, of course, it's fine. What are you, what, what's going on? And Kevin was like, oh, Greta, Greta Thunberg's just on the phone. Uh, you know, I'm just about to talk with her dad, which I just thought was amazing. And yeah, ended up telling uh, all my friends about it. <laughs> uh, so we've got a short clip uh, of Greta now. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? After hearing that talk, uh, you wrote this on Twitter, Kevin. Greta demonstrates more clarity and leadership in one speech than a quarter of a century of combined contributions of the so-called world leaders. Can you expand a bit on that tweet and tell us a bit about how you two work together, how you help each other? Well, I've known Greta... It must be, it must be, it's over two years I've, I've been engaged with Greta, but let's, I don't want to overplay that relationship. Uh, I work in Sweden and um, Greta's parents asked one of my colleagues, could, could she come down with her, with her mom and dad and uh, we have a chat about climate change. And we, 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 we met and we spoke for quite a lot, lot, lot of the day, actually. Um, and in fact, Greta's mom's got a book coming out later this year with Penguin, which discusses our, our meeting then, which is quite interesting how she is it's a very sort of Swedish form. Everything is it's warts and all. The Swedes, again, it's partly because of their culture, I think, that they just say it as it is. So it's quite interesting when I was reading this through and the way that it would have been coloured um, if it had been written in, in, by a, for, for a UK audience or by a British person. But in Sweden, they just sort of paint it as, it, as they see it. Um, and so I, I, from then on, really, um, Greta was engaged in the school strikes and then she was increasingly um, involved in these various speeches that's given at sort of high-level events. And, and really what Greta does is she passes her speech to me or asks me about particular questions but not just me there's a small sort of cohort of other people that she engages with and you often get very little warning you'll get something like um either Greta or Svante will send an email and it'll be quite perfunctory emails of, uh, where we're meeting Macron in five hours have you got any quick comments on the French emissions over the last 10 years <laughs> and it'll be something like that so you're desperately there to sort of pull together some information on French emissions but of course that's the things we work on so it's not it's not quite so challenging but and then try to put some sort of headline comments down and then you send them to Greta and then Greta will include them or not as she sees fit um and it's the same with her speeches. We may make comments often on the sort of scientific component of those. And I know there's other people involved who make comments on this sort of the mitigation, on the impacts and aspects like that. And then she, she makes those judgments of whether she wants to include them or not include them. Um, and I would say by and large, she, she probably doesn't include 80 to 90% of them, um, and which is absolutely fine. It's, it's, she's, she's the one that's got to make the judgment on, on what's the best way to write the speech. They always seem to me to be factually correct and robust and, and that's what I'm really talking about, about this sort of clarity and integrity, uh, is that she, 
she's not interested in in making friends or um, or being liked. Uh, she's interested in saying what she judges is is uh, the right thing to say in accordance with her understanding of the science. And that understanding of the science is trying to get informed by other people who work directly in those areas. But let's also be clear: she does do quite a lot of reading. You know, she's no one's puppet. Nothing like it. You know, she's she's like I, I, to me. I see it's a bit like working with um with um a well-read, engaged, early career researcher who you rapidly see is getting to know more than you know about the subject. <laughs> um, and I think there's something about how she pulls all this together in a way that actually academics should be more dispassionate, um, which I, I, I recognise I've failed on. Um, but she managed to hold that most of the time, I think. And she's very, cl- I mean, the emotion is there, but the emotion is definitely do- only informed by her interpretation of the evidence. And her interpretation is one that I, I share and so do many other um, climate academics of one sort or another um, and she's never I think been swayed by saying things that that are just convenient or or that would make her or her message liked by the audience and I think that is something that we as academics we should all learn from indeed I think the NGOs should as well so this is where you know, she has taken her interpretation of the science as best as she can make she's asked people who work specifically in those fields she's put that together in, in speeches and packages which that are clear accurate and really well communicated to a wider audience. And then she's prepared to put her head above the parapet and be counted. And I think she, she has been a real revelation as a catalyst. You know, she shows what, what integrity and honesty can actually deliver. And she's done more, I think, in just two years in terms of engaging people on climate change than as an academic community we have managed to achieve in 20 years. That's not to say we've done some wonderful stuff on the science, but I think on the, what we should do about science, we need to hold our heads in shame. And really up until you know, Greta catalyzing a movement amongst, the, amongst other young people, the youth strikes, and even feeding into some of the new things like Extinction Rebellion, you know, with a, sort of a wider sort of gaggle of people from all sorts of backgrounds and so forth. And, and I think a wider engagement on issues of climate change that has also coincided with more of the impacts becoming, becoming evident with other programmes like the, the plastic stuff that um, Attenborough has been involved with. So there's a, there's a sort of wider discourse about our, our, um, our role in destroying our own home and I think Greta's fed very well into that. And, and actually her voice has been key in, in cutting through all of the, the fluff and nonsense, the delusion that we have put in to, to hide the fact that we have failed for the previous 30 years. OK, so at the end of each podcast, we do some quick fire questions, a bit think on your feet. And we've asked the same questions to all of our guests. OK. Um, so first of all, if you could pick one policy that would most help with climate change and it would be implemented tomorrow, what would it be? <laughs> if it would be implemented tomorrow, I would probably put a salary cap and the money that was taken from that it would be pumped back into uh, transforming our infrastructure. And the salary cap would probably be somewhere around the 70 to £90,000 a year. Um, on a similar vein, if there was one action that individuals could do, what would you suggest? It's, they're, they're combined, so I'm trying not to cheat here. It's to identify your own large carbon footprint items or even sustainability um, implications of your lifestyle and change them. But that in itself is irrelevant. So it only works as an action if you then talk about it in an engaged fashion and honestly, the, the, the things that worked well, the things that were challenging with your friends, your neighbours, your work colleagues. So it's starting that dialogue. But the dialogue needs to be informed and the credibility is lent to the dialogue by trying to make the changes yourself. 
even though the changes in isolation are, are unimportant. And on a slightly different note, what is your guilty pleasure? Camper vanning. <laughs> With my bike in the back. Where have you been? Oh, quite a lot of continental Europe. Um, that's, uh, and I haven't hidden that. That's a, it's a, it is the, I think I'm asking the choice between my home and my camper van. I think I'd choose my camper van. <laughs>